So we're continuing on, and we're looking at our values, Redeemer's values, over the next few weeks. And there are three of them, basically, gospel, community, and mission. And like I said last week, one sermon cannot summarize all the biblical teaching and community about community, so we're not going to try. Instead, what we're doing is we're looking at passages each week that highlight an aspect of our values and will allow us to focus in on part of it. Now, today we are at the prototypical passage about community, about from the book of Acts chapter 2. So let me read that to you. It's Acts 2, 41 to 47. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There's a lot in that passage. <laughs> so for the next two hours, I'm going to uncover. No. There's things I necessarily will have to leave out. And it's things, no matter what I leave out, somebody's going to say, oh, I would love to have heard you talk more about miracles and things. We're not going to do it all. Instead, let's think about what's happening here at the early church. First, I have a little hesitancy in me when I talk about it being the formation of the church because sometimes we confuse that because the people of God had existed long before this moment. Israel has been a thing for a long time. What's happening here is God is focusing in and saying, here's the new expression of my people. Here's how they are going to be from now on. And what happens is kind of like a match. When you strike a match, it flares up. And then it eventually settles down into a slow, hot burn. And Peter at Pentecost in his sermon and the 3,000 coming to faith, that's the flare. And then you begin to see almost Luke changes gears and it becomes, I don't want to say mundane because it sounds like I'm passing judgment, but he goes into the, just the day-to-day living of the church, you know, from high flame of Pentecost to what, how they functioned. And that's important because what you're seeing is, it's amazing, the Spirit, you can't avoid the Holy Spirit here. He's there and people become saved. And they're filled and they're, they're excited, they're ready to go. And you see the Spirit coming into the church and guiding them to become something. Take all of this zeal, all that you have, and here is how you are to settle into community that will be the community that transforms the world. And you see every step, the Spirit guiding them to behave a certain way, to worship a certain way. And that's why the church puts such an emphasis on Acts 2 for, as a model for what we do and why we do it. So we're going to try to understand some of those principles, only four, four, see, not three. See, I'm doing very good. But last, year was two, last week was two points, this is four, so now it's six points net, so that's still three points a sermon. But um, <laughs> I'm still breaking even. But no, we're going to look at four things, and we will leave some things out, so let's just try to do our best, and we're going to see that God is building for himself, and what we want to be is a community of learning, of worship, of growth, and of intimacy. And I'm going to move quicker through the first three and then linger on the intimacy one a little bit. So let's go into learning. So right out of the way, we see that it says that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. So the word devoted is a stubborn persistence, a commitment to the apostles' preaching. 
And one of the or teaching, one of the things I find interesting here is how we pastors and churches slip away from this. And you think, really? Well, here's how. Have you noticed how sometimes we think that what this means is we just replace apostle for pastor? So now you come to church and sit at the feet of the pastor. That's not biblical, right? You don't come here to hear Carl's teaching. You come to still hear the apostle's teaching, right? A pastor is only worthy to be a mouthpiece so long as what he is teaching is the apostle's teaching. We still gather to hear the apostle's teaching, not Carl's. And when I cease to teach that, fire me if I don't quit, Lord willing. That's what we do. We come here to still hear the apostles' teaching, not Carl's. And when we make that mistake, things happen. You are disappointed because you think I'm the apostle subtly, right? You think, oh, it's Carl's teaching, and look, he's fallen from grace. And then your faith struggles. Or worse yet, I start to believe the press and think I am an apostle. I am not. I'm just the guy who teaches. I've been called to do this, pulled out of the community to teach. That's all. So, first and foremost, we still gather. God's creating a people. And there's two things about this, this little, these few words about them being committed to teaching that are worth talking about. One, it doesn't say that we are committed to mystical prayer or Eastern meditation. We're committed to didache, teaching, instruction. It's, it's important to note, preaching should be touching the heart. It should be practical. But make no mistake, it's not anti-intellectual. Because a spirit of truth couldn't be hostile to intellect. So it's got to be both, because teaching drives you deeper, and that doesn't happen by just filling up the heart, right? Because I'm an old systematic professor, uh, theology professor told me, he said, Santos, he called me Santos all the time, very gruff guy. He said, Santos, theology is the, is the, um, the keel on a ship. You know what a keel is? Well, there's people here who are sailors, I know that. Well, that big hunk of lead that sits at the bottom of a ship is there so that when it tips over, it writes it up again, right? So it can't be tipped over. Well, at least it's difficult. And that is what deep theology is. We study these things because when your emotions are rocking you, when you get a bad diagnosis, you have marital problems, your kids run from the faith, lose a job, whatever it is, this happens to your faith. You're shaking. And what is it that holds you, st- holds you firm? Christ, of course, but it's those truths. Those truths of saying, even though even though it looks like everything is going where it shouldn't be going, I have to trust his word. I have to trust the doctrine that tells me he will never forsake me. I have to trust it. And so teaching is vitally important. And notice as well that it doesn't say here that once the Christians are saved, they no longer need human teachers. The spirit is enough. Just go. You don't need a teacher. The spirit is enough. That is a not good thing. The Spirit is sufficient for salvation, all of that. We're not talking about salvation here, right? We're talking about God, for some reason, has said, I'm going to mature my people through each other. They're going to have teachers who are going to feed the hunger for the Word. That doesn't make them saints, but it does say, you can't, we can't simply say, I don't need to be part of a church. We're going to talk more about unity in a minute. I don't need to be part of a church. I get my teaching, you know, the Spirit, just the Spirit. I read my Bible, that's enough doesn't seem to be what's said here because God immediately drives them to teachers, okay? Now, let's leave that one there. I'm sure there'll be lots of questions. So we're a learning community. We're there to learn. But again, remember, learning is not just intellectual. It ought to drive us deeper in relationship, which is not just intellect. The second thing is we're a community of worship. 
This passage doesn't tell you everything about the worship of the church. Paul does it uh, in other areas as well. But there's two things that pop up in this passage that are important. Have you noticed in, that for, in verse 42, it says that they were devoted to the breaking of bread and the prayers? Other places it says later on, actually in verse 46, it says they broke bread. They're breaking bread. It doesn't say the breaking of bread. But why does Luke put the definite article, the, in front of bread and in front of the prayers? Well, it's because, and this is an old, you probably have heard this, maybe you've heard this before, scholars have long known that whenever the New Testament writers refer to the breaking of bread, they're talking about communion, right? So they got together and they were committed to communion when they got together. So they're worshiping. It's not just meals. They talk about meals in, chapter, in verse 46, and we'll get there when we talk about hospitality and things. So they're worshiping when they got together. This isn't just a group of people who are just intellect, right? They get together and they worship. And when it says the prayers as opposed to prayer, it's, it seems that the church already in its earliest days had either adopted the Jewish system of getting, of getting together to pray every day, or they had already developed their own prayer meetings. But whatever it is, those definite articles tell us that they had already a systematic way of worshiping. It wasn't just loosey-goosey. They knew what they were getting together to do. The Spirit had driven them to worship in a certain way. So they were a worshiping community. I find what I like about this is, and this is very relevant, I think, now, is they weren't concerned about the building. See, they weren't allowed to meet, right? They weren't allowed to meet in certain places. They were still... Uh, not looked at very well by the Jews. The Jews didn't like them because they were causing trouble with the Romans and the Romans would then come after the Jews. So they didn't have a house. They didn't have a church that they could meet in. But do you notice they never pick it for the right to gather in a building? Instead, they say, well, what can we do and how do we gather together? Because worship and community was more important than the building. And that sort of improvisation of the church, that nimbleness, that willingness to adapt to whatever they throw is something we need to learn, I think. How do we do that? How do we worship in any circumstance? Any circumstance. And that's, a, that's something to think, I don't know the answer. But we're, we're giving thought to it for sure. So we're a learning community. We're a worshiping community. Now we're a growing community. Now this one I'll talk about next week more when we talk about mission. However, something is important to say. Notice the verses I read. Verse 41, we can put it on the screen. To kind of, I highlight them. Verse 41 and 47, they're, they're called bookends. In the academic world, we call it an inclusio. These two statements that are about the same that make a sandwich of a passage. And the sandwich here is built on the same idea that people were being saved and added to the church. Notice, though, that there's two ways they were being added, we're told. One was Peter. That first one, verse 41, is talking about Peter's sermon on Pentecost. And the next one just says in the day-to-day life, every day people were being added. If, if sociologists are right, and they went, the church went from 1,000 people at Christ's death and resurrection to 33.5 million at the time of Constantine, then that means 300 people a day were becoming Christian every single day to hit that number for, three, for 300 years. Day by day, and I'm not knocking it, I'm guilty of this too, but what they didn't say is the church had outreach programs they did every Christmas, Right? They had outreach. They were running Alpha every summer. I worked for Alpha, so I'm in no way disparaging Alpha. See, it wasn't seasonal. Day by day, people were being added, which means day by day, people were witnessing. And this, this constant commitment to sharing the gospel, something happened to people. And all through these, in fact, in all of these, something radical happened to these people 
that made them think it was important to share what they knew. And important to do it knowing that they could lose their jobs, their life, their social standing, their friends, their family. Amidst all of that, they still felt it's worth it. And they shared the gospel. Not because they were all, you know, running programs and they went to a, a class on the weekend. They just shared what was coming out of them. I've told you before, I like jokes. And when I hear a good joke, it's, it's, I got to tell somebody. Got to. I haven't enjoyed the joke until I've shared it. Because otherwise, what's the point in a joke? If I'm just telling you in my head, I look crazy, right? Laughing at myself. <laughs> I got to tell somebody the joke. And when you love something, you want to share it. We do that with our kids. People today even are saying, I love seeing your kids run around the church, Carl. You know what we do when we do that? We're inviting people into the joy we feel. Look how beautiful she is. Look how, look how happy they are. And when we say look, what we're saying is come and enjoy it with me. Go to the restaurant I love. Go to the church I love. Go to the school I love. Read the books I love. We always invite people to participate in that which satisfies us. It's natural. It should be natural. But somehow, we haven't had it happen. All, not all the time. Not like we're seeing here. Anyway. Now, if those three things were a learning, worshiping, and growing community, intimacy, I think, is the key to this part that I wanted to highlight. So they devoted themselves as well to koinonia, right? Fellowship, you've heard that word. It's a very popular uh, Greek term in the church. And it means fellowship is good. It's a good translation. It also means things like participation, sharing, intimacy. It's the same word that Paul will use in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says that we share, we koinonia in the, in the suffering and resurrection of Christ. Okay, so we're part, like we're, I'm not going to go into it today, but there's something that Christ is enduring on the cross that we, in some way, participate in. We don't feel it, we don't earn our salvation, none of that. But there's a participation, we benefit from it. There's an intimacy there. It's not just symbolic, there's something happening. And then, in Philippians, he says the same thing about the Spirit, and he says, those who have koinonia with the Holy Spirit will be united to one another. And that is very indicting to us, isn't it? We often lament to the world of how, you know, the world's so, so divided, the world's so divided. Listen, the church is dividing about masks. We are no better. So the only, the sad indictment I have to face sometimes, because I, I, try, I believe the Bible to be true, so when it says that if you have the spirit of unity in you, you will be united, that means when we're not united, there's a lack of spirit in us. And that's humbling to know that. But koinonias, it's very, this intimacy. Now, we see this come out. This intimacy is expressed in, well, in many ways, but I have to limit it. So we're going to do four quick things here in the intimacy part. Four ways we see it expressed in this, in this passage we just read. The first one, and this one is, they're all challenging, is binding, okay? Intimacy is expressed here. Koinonia is a binding together. And this is a case, it's going to sound odd, but wait till I get there. It's a case for church membership. Membership is a very, uh, it's, it's a term that's on the outs in the church, right? Because we, we're free agents. I don't like the, what the church is doing. I can leave, you know? It's actually the reason churches have church membership is not because we're trying to get, we don't get commissions. It's not a pyramid scheme. Um, we, we do it because membership models what Christ has actually done. He has united us together. And membership is our physical and our visible way of saying what he's already done, we are, in, we are engaging in and, and committing to here. But look at what it says in the passage because you don't, I don't need you, you don't need me to tell you. It says in verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
Their number, of course, is the church, right? He had to their number. He's talking about the church. He's, the church is growing day by day. So when people are saved, the very first thing the Spirit does, he drives them to a church. He drives them into community. It's the same thing in verse 41 as well. They're saved and they're added to the, that day. What are they added to? The body, the physical gathering. So when people come and say, Pastor, I don't need to be part of a church to be a Christian, you're wrong. You do. Now, of course, there's a season where we're looking and we're moving, we're, we're figuring things out, you're at school, I understand that. But what we're seeing here is that at this birth moment of the church, the Spirit is driving believers into community. There's no room to say, I can be fine without the church. You can do what you'd like. It's a free world. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture drives the same in and adds it to the numbers of the body. Into this, and it's not just this mystical body, the, 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 the church invisible, right? The, the, the church that we don't see. No, it's this physical church, the church triumphant, the church sometimes calls it. Us is what it is. Or church militant, sorry. So let me go even further here. There's so much more I could say, but let me move on. So he binds us together. It's one of the aspects of intimacy here. The koinonia is a binding. We commit to one another. You know, it's not like Starbucks. I talk about Starbucks every week, don't I? Um, if, you know, I like Starbucks, but if I find a place with good atmosphere, with coffee that is just as good and maybe a bit cheaper, I'm sorry, Starbucks, you've lost me because my commitment is only skin deep. I don't have a covenant with them. I have a covenant, but it's a consumer covenant. And the church is not called to have a consumer covenant. So when people want to leave the church because you get rid of pews, we're not doing, you know, that's not a problem here, or something, I understand you feel that that's a deep commitment. But I, as a pastor, will always say, okay, would you leave your family for that reason? If your wife wanted a different chair in the living room, would you just walk out and say, I'm done with this place. God isn't honored here. No, you wouldn't, because it's family. And we need to develop this. We need to see, like it or not, we're going to know each other for eternity. So we better get to know each other here. Bind. Christ has bound us together. So let's move on. Next thing is unity. I love at the start of this chapter, chapter 2, I'll read some of it. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and the visitors from Rome, and uh, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and, and Arabians. From this gathering, because it's Pentecost, right? Pentecost. You know what Pentecost is? It's the feast of first fruits. Not by accident, the first fruits of the resurrection and ascension are the church coming out at Pentecost. So the very first church is multicultural. Multicultural. They seem to have something, something has so radically happened to these people that they can look past history, social class, race. And there's issues, as you see early on in the church, they start to, to have trouble. But there's this desire for the church to be united and to be multicultural, multigenerational, multiracial, and so on. And I think, and I've spoken on critical theory recently, if the church had done a better job and had been, and even now we're doing a better job of accepting the truth that Christ has broken down the dividing wall. Remember in Ephesians? He's broken down the dividing wall between people. If we were modeling better unity amidst, despite social class differences, despite racial differences, despite differences on your opinions about 
I mean, just imagine in this culture, even if we were to say we have a church that is strictly div- uh, divided on the topic of masks and vaccines, and yet we're together worshiping and loving, and the strife is put in its proper place because we have unity in Christ. What a witness that would be. The reason critical race theory, which I don't want to throw critical race theory out if you heard my talk, because there are real racial issues and justice issues that we have to deal with. That's not a, that's not a question. But the reason theories take precedence in this culture over the gospel is because the, ch- the world looks at the church and says, you don't have the answer to unity. Look at you. You don't have the answer. We can't provide a credible alternative to these theories, these secular theories, unless we start to actually know what we're doing. <laughs> so there's this unity thing that's happening right here in the church in these early years, early days, that we need to figure out. Is how do we become united? How do we know what is most important and what isn't? When to, get a big, you know, when, to, when to get flared up and angry about and when not to. But what we're doing instead is, you know, where scripture gives you very little to go on directly about a topic, we turn the dialogue up to 10, right? We get angry. Meanwhile, scripture is saying, hey, I didn't tell you you have to be vaccinated or don't have to be vaccinated. Nothing's in scripture about that. So it's good to have that discussion and be wise and shrewd, but don't make it a salvific issue. Don't dial it up to church falling apart. There's a unity of the Spirit. Do we realize how, he, what, how what unites us is far greater than what, what threatens to separate us? Far greater. So there's this unity in the church. Generosity is another one. This gospel community is far more complex than communism or socialism. I've often heard that, right? Uh, people will say, look at the church in its early days. It was a communist routine. It was a communist place, socialist, because they had all their wealth and they divided it amongst each other. It's a Marxist paradise. Um, no, it's not. It's far, actually far more complex than Karl Marx ever imagined it would be, but far more wonderful and sustainable as well. So the, the classic line, of course, is this up, up behind me. They had all things in common, and, that's the key word, I'll, I'll explain that, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So they say, see, they had everything in common. What we should do, some people say, is everybody sell your stuff and give it to the committee of the reallocation of wealth, and then we would, as a church will decide, and we'll make it everybody even. You know, some of you making 120000 some of you making forty. let's make everybody sixty, Right? And they think this is what, what the church is doing. It's never what the church did. Look at, look at, I mean, the wording is right here. They had all things in common, and they were selling. So it means what they didn't have in common was their possessions, obviously, right? It's and. On top of having things in common, they, they were, what they were doing was not just selling it and giving it to this relocation committee. They were saying, I want to care enough about you so that when a need arises, I'll do what I can to meet it. Somebody has a need, I'll sell my car. I'll sell this. I'll give this. I'll show up. There was this organic, there's no need for a committee to do it all in this early church. I'm not shunning organization as we know. But you see, it's not communism. It's this deep care for one another that made them radically generous to say, it's okay that the church has wealthy people. It's no sin in being wealthy. But there is a sin when in chapter 4 of Acts, it says they had no poor among them. That's an indictment. The question isn't, I don't mind, nobody cares how much money you have. Have all the money you want. The question is, are we making sure that the people are not struggling in our community? Are we modeling this? You see, because, uh, let, me, let me give you an example. Rodney Stark, and I'm, it's, it's out of position a little bit, but Rodney Stark, is, uh, that's Will Willimon, different guy. 
Um, Rodney Stark was a sociologist, and he wrote a book about how Christianity grew. A lot of books, actually. One of them's called The Rise of Christianity, one's of Triumph. He's written a number of books. And in it, look at what he says. Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with homeless and the impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. He is talking here about a church that was so radically changed that the idol of money, which is a, maybe a greater, I don't want to say greater idol than it was, I don't know, it's a big idol. Whatever happened to these people was so radical that it broke the idol of the myth of wealth and the myth of poverty, of saying, I don't have enough, so I can't be generous. Or, I have a lot because I worked for it. They didn't work, that's why they have nothing. It broke these ideas of, of wealth and turned them into a people who didn't say to the government, more, more social welfare for people. They didn't picket Rome. They bore the cost of care themselves. That is radically difficult. Because right now, we do think we're being good Christians when we pick it. And what Christ keeps saying is, I didn't pick at Rome. I bore the cost of reconciliation. I bore the cost of your poverty. I gave you my wealth. And we're called to do this. This is what the Benevolent Fund is here at the church, that we give into it. Because when we hear of a need from you or the phone calls or any way, we then go, and I love Roger, who works here, who's always telling us at our staff meetings, hey, we still got some money, so let's get rid of it. You know, Who needs help? We, we shouldn't have any money in that fund. We should continually be pouring it into the need. And he's right. But the problem is, and this is my indictment, we don't know of the needs. That's why there's money there still. I know there's needs, but I don't know them. Partly because you won't tell me, partly because maybe I haven't gotten near enough to a lot of you to know the need. It's, unf uh, it's difficult. We're being called to be this. And the ancients would have, this was radical in the ancient world. See, ancient philosophy, including the greats of Plato and Aristotle, would say things like, why would you help the poor? If the gods wanted them to be wealthy, he would have made them wealthy. You're, you're upsetting the balance here. And the church said, no, that's not true at all. And if you're not going to do anything about it, we will. This is the church community. Do you see why it says, I'll go back to it, which we read, which I'm not going to spend time on, but it said, um, where was it here? They're selling all their possessions. Sorry. I just read it and I don't know. Oh, here, verse 47. They were praising God and having favor with all people. Do we have favor with all people in Niagara Falls as a church? Because we're so loving to our community. They're like, you know, they're crazy and they're wackos, but man, they love this city. Do we have favor? I don't know. I don't know if we do. If this is hard, you want the value sermons to be a little more upbeat, don't you? But, you know, when I look at community, you just look at what we're called to and I realize, oh Lord, thank you that you forgive sinners. <laughs> but we're, we're, we're laboring to get there. But let's move on. The last one is hospitality. More I could say, of course. They broke bread in their homes. So this is verse 46. You'll notice in verse 46, he doesn't say the, the breaking of bread, just breaking bread. Here he's talking about hospitality. And the expression of intimacy then comes out of them in opening up their homes. And I'll tell you, the number one reason, I see it continually, the number one reason people don't invite other people to their homes 
is fear and pride. They're terrified that people are going to see, they're going to see how I really live. They're going to see how dirty my house is, or they're going to see how, how me, I talk to my kids. And, and we're so worried about how we're, we're looking that we don't want to have people at our homes. And yet, this is what they did. They met in their homes continually. And it's a vulnerability that we, we need. We must be. Because uh, this Sunday is good to get our marching orders to worship together and go out. But you need, we need vulnerability with each other. And that means letting people into their homes. And one of the examples I use often is a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. She was an English professor and uh, LGBTQ uh, member, a, a public, or very, an out uh, lesbian, very outspoken. And she once wrote a letter, uh, an article for a newspaper against the Promise Keepers organization because of their stance on sexuality. A few days later, she got a, a message from a pastor named Ken Smith. And Ken Smith said, hey, I read your article. I'd love to talk to you, but come over for dinner. Come to our place for dinner. When she showed up, she was expecting there to be a fistfight, you know, uh, debates, because it's the enemy coming in. Here is her testimony as to what happened. That feast, the long family dinner table at the Smith House, and my presence at the table were not a one-night event. It was regular and rhythmic. As these Christians folded me, the enemy, into their feasting, I became hungry for more of what they had. I started to read the Bible, no longer to critique it or mock it or despise it, but to roll it around in my private dream talk, to turn the pages of the Bible and the pages of my heart together, to let it wash me and shape me and rebuke me and comfort me. I remember one day experiencing what happens when the Bible gets to be bigger than my sin and my selfishness. I remember one day realizing that I needed to hate my sin without hating myself. And always in the background of these cataclysmic changes was the feasting at the Smith House. What followed was the sweetest washing of repentance, my life commitment, uh, sorry, sweet washing of repentance, my life commitment to Jesus, and the covenant of church membership. I was no longer the enemy of Jesus, but his devoted disciple. And she's written, in fact, as a young adults, when we're reading one of her books, she's now married to a pastor in Carolina, I think, and very different life. And everything she talks about is hospitality. How this intimacy that we have lost, you see, Social media, all these things we're doing, we're disconnected. COVID. And we have to open up. We have to be willing to be vulnerable. If you come to the Santos home, it's not going to be perfect. There's going to be six kids there. A lot of mess. Probably a diaper somewhere. I'm almost positive. Under a couch. I don't know. There's going to be... Sometimes we're going to invite you over and you're not going to get great food. It's going to be grilled cheese. Because that's easy to make and we want to be able to spend time with you and not spend time making fancy food. It's not going to be perfect. The lawn may or may not be cut depending on how my week went. And I won't, I'll want to apologize for it. I will. But I won't. And I don't expect you to. If I come to your home or anyone comes and your house is a mess, who cares? You think we think your house is perfect? We know it's not true. We know how we live. Let's just be vulnerable. Let's be real. When Christ wanted to prove his reality to Thomas, he didn't come and show him a perfect resurrected body. He said, touch my wounds. He showed him a wounded body. We need to be better at showing each other our wounds. Don't come here pretending you're perfect. I know it's not. We know life is not easy. Let's be honest. Let's open up our homes to people. Will Willimon, one more guy. I call him Yosemite Sam. He's a wonderful man, but he's very fiery. Um, and he says this, as one views modern congregations, many with their hectic round of activities, yoga, ceramics, basket weaving, daycare, 
one suspects that socialization is being substituted for the gospel. Warm-hearted busyness is being offered in lieu of spirit-empowered community. One wonders if the church needs to reflect again that when all is said and done, one thing is needful, namely to embody in the church's unique way the peculiarity of the call to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. He's saying, our job as a church is not to keep you entertained. And we want to sometimes. It's not to just have programs so that you think I'm earning my pay. My job, our job as a church, is to press us deeper into these things, fellowship, breaking of bread, and so on. And so you're going to see things that I'm offering, not just because we offer classes and children's ministry, not just to keep you busy, not just to give you time to go to Ikea while your kids are here, though, that, though that's an important time to do that. I understand. We're doing it because we're trying to drive each other deeper into these things. Okay? Now, what's the power? Let me really close here. What's the motivation? You see, if we don't do this, the fear is we become cannibals. Let me explain. I know it's hard language, but let me explain. Cannibals consume themselves. Churches can become cannibalistic when we create programs that nobody comes to but us. We have a Christmas pageant, but who comes? It's you and your grandkids and me and my friends. And these things seem very good because they get good numbers. Let's stop it. Let's stop producing things we consume. Let's start thinking about the community. I remember telling one of my churches, uh, we had $80,000 was given to us to, to be used for, as a building uh, to help to fix a building up. We had to use it for that way. So when I asked, what do we do with this money? Uh, I started listening to requests. And the requests coming in were things like, let's build a quilting a room for quilting um, and lots of things. And they were good things. But I had at one point to say, okay, before we go there again, let's, what's the point of the Noah's Ark story? And they all said, well, it's to build an ark. I said, no, no. The point of the Noah's Ark story is to judge a rotten world and to save a remnant because God is gracious. The ark is a tool by which he accomplishes it. That's all. This building is important. We've, you've paid for it with your, your blood and money, like literally. But it's a tool. And when we say, and Louisa comes, and she hasn't, but let's suppose Louisa comes to me and says, Carl, I want the kids to do paint up here. Can kids paint in the sanctuary? I'm going to think, well, let's think about it. Maybe. I'm not opposed to it. Because although there's a cost, we want to respect it and we want to be honoring, this is a tool for saving the lost, for equipping. Let's treat it that way. Let's not make an idol of the building. And how do we do it, though? How do we become those people who don't mind? I have a Starbucks in here, by the way. I'm not supposed to have a drink in here. Because the carpet has become an idol. Somebody spills a carpet, but Carl, it's a carpet. We don't want to just be reckless. I can bring a coffee into an operating room, but not into Redeemer Church. That's interesting, isn't it? I'm not trying to be... I'm, we, maybe we have to reassess what we're doing here a little. All of us. Me too. I'm guilty. I'm not picking on any individual here. But how do we become this sort of a church? The only answer is Peter's message. It's the gospel and the spirit. Paul, Peter comes and says, for the, this promise... Remember, he tells them about everything. He says, Jesus died. He was raised. And if you repent and you are baptized... He then finishes by saying, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. That, that's the motivation. When you and I actually believe, and I'm putting myself in this category, when we really believe that we were far off and the only thing that brought us near was the gospel, Christ dying for us, boy, I'm not going to care about my opinions. I'm not going to care about looking stupid. I'm not going to care about having to spend my Monday instead of prepping a sermon, vacuuming. 
He died for us. Time is short. Our kids are dying. Our family, our world is falling apart. And I'm saying this to you, and I know most of you agree with me. So I'm not, I realize I'm not convicting. I'm not, I'm not trying to make you something you're not. I'm saying let's get better at doing it together. When we see the gospel, and notice devotion comes after salvation. He doesn't say they devoted themselves to all these things before, and then they were saved because they were good devotees. He saves us first. And because we are saved, then we obey. Every other religion will say, obey, and then you belong. Christianity says, no, you belong. Now obey, because you already belong. That's the motivation, the gospel. Let's pray.